This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Margaret Parker. Dr. Parker is the Division Chief of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine at Stony Brook Children's Hospital, where she is also Professor of Pediatrics, Anesthesia, and Medicine at the Stony Brook University School of Medicine. I should also note that Dr. Parker is the past president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and she's currently the associate editor of the journal Critical Care Medicine. Margaret, welcome. Thank you very much, Jeff. Dr. Parker, I suspect I speak for many of our colleagues around the world in um, wanting to ask this question of you. Uh, based on all your years of experience, what are some of the seminal publications, manuscripts, investigations that uh, a pediatric intensivist should be knowledgeable about? Well, let me start with uh, the paper by um, Bram Goldstein and the International Consensus Conference on Pediatric Sepsis, uh, identifying uh, definitions for sepsis and organ uh, dysfunction in pediatrics. Uh, the definitions of sepsis in adult medicine were established um, in 1992 with the consensus conference um, and uh, Roger Bone leading that, defining systemic inflammatory response syndrome and going on and de defining sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. The concept of a systemic inflammatory response syndrome has been applied to pediatrics as well. Although children are different from adults in terms of their heart rate, their vital signs, um, and other parameters. So the consensus conference that um, Bram Goldstein defined SIRS for pediatrics, um, including the presence of two or more of uh, abnormal temperature, tachycardia, tachypnea, or abnormal white count. The difference between the pediatric definition and the adult definition for SIRS was that for children, one of the two abnormal parameters that define SIRS must be abnormal temperature or um, abnormal white count. So a child who is just tachypnic and tachycardic will not meet SIRS criteria, um, which is a different from, difference from adults. Uh, the other definitions, uh, the presence or suspicion of infection with SIRS um, defines sepsis. Severe sepsis in pediatrics is defined as sepsis plus either cardiac dysfunction, uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome, or two or more other organ dysfunctions. And that's another difference from the adult definition for severe sepsis, which is sepsis plus organ dysfunction. Um, so there are slight di differences in the definitions um, for children. The definition of septic shock in children is uh, sepsis plus cardiovascular uh, dysfunction after fluid resuscitation, um, which is similar to that seen in adults. Um, 
As I mentioned before, children have different normal vital signs than adults do, and so when looking at tachypnea and, and tachycardia uh, in the child, one has to consider age-related normals. And so included within the Goldstein paper is a table that shows age-related normals for heart rate, respiratory rate, uh, and systolic blood pressure, which is, of course, important for cardiovascular dysfunction. Um, there are also included in this um, paper the definitions for cardiovascular, respiratory, neurologic, renal, and um, metabolic organ uh, and hematologic organ dysfunction, um, which are obviously part of the um, definitions to define severe sepsis. Could I ask you this, Margaret? Um as you noted, that was some 13 years after uh, the adult definitions came out. And um, while it's intuitively, intuitively obvious that um, we need a common definition so that we can discuss with each other and appropriately diagnose and categorize, um, was, it as, was this paper equally as important because it allowed us to then perf perform more precise clinical investigations because we now had a common definition around which uh, to measure and report outcomes? I think that probably is the um, single most important point of having uh, uniform definitions. I think it is sometimes quite difficult to recognize severe sepsis uh, in children because the manifestations may be quite subtle. Um, but it's particularly important as we do clinical investigations that we have a relatively uniform definition for the patient population. Um, and so these, the Goldstein definitions and in fact the bone definitions for adult sepsis are probably more important for clinical investigations than they are for actual care at the bedside. Um, because in order to enroll a child in a clinical trial looking at sepsis, one has to have rather well-defined criteria. I wonder if I could take you back to a paper that I read when I was a fellow, and it was your work in 1984 describing uh, ventricular dysfunction and sepsis, and you were the first to characterize that. So could you tell us about myocardial depressant factor in that study? Yes. Um, in 1984, we published the paper Profound but Reversible Myocardial Depression in Patients with Septic Shock uh, in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Uh, we had done radionuclide angiography in um, our patients, adult patients with septic shock in the ICU at the National Institutes of Health. Uh, and we had found um, by radionuclide angiography that these patients who had elevated cardiac output um, and would otherwise not have been considered to have myocardial depression um, had marked reduction in injection fraction and dilation of the left ventricle acutely during septic shock within the first few days, which then reversed um, and the patient, as the patients recovered seven to 10 days later. Um, I, this slide shows a sample radionuclide scan from a patient uh, acutely during septic shock with a markedly dilated and hypokinetic left ventricle, and then 10 days later when his ejection fraction had recovered uh, to the, the mid-60s in a normal function. Uh, this slide shows the um, 
ejection fraction in blue and the left ventricular end diastolic volume in yellow in our survivors with the dashed lines and our non-survivors with a solid line of septic shock, showing that acutely on the first day of septic shock, there was depression of the ejection fraction and dilation of uh, with an increased end diastolic volume, both of which returned towards normal uh, one to two weeks later when the patient recovered. We went on to do some work looking at the mechanism by which this might occur. A number of studies by uh, Gary Scher and others showed that there was not a reduction in coronary artery blood flow, so there was not global ischemia causing this reversible myocardial depression. Uh, but Joe Perillo developed an in vitro myocardial cell um, assay to look at uh, for the presence of a uh, substance in the serum from patients with septic shock that functioned as a myocardial depressant. This slide shows a sample of the effect of serum from, patient, from a patient with septic shock on this in vitro assay um, with the amplitude and velocity of contraction um, initially being normal, but when serum from a patient with septic shock was added, there was an immediate marked reduction uh, in both amplitude and velocity of contraction. When the serum was removed, the amplitude and velocity of contraction again uh, returned to normal. Uh, this assay was used to look at serum from normal laboratory personnel, patients with structural heart disease with a de decreased ejection fraction, critically ill not septic patients are septic shock patients, and in some cases, serum from those septic shock patients after they recovered. Uh, in the three control groups, there was no significant change in myocardial cell amplitude or velocity of contraction in vitro, while the um, patients with septic shock in the acute phase had a significant marked reduction um, in myocardial cell uh, contractility, which then uh, was not present in their serum when they had recovered from septic shock. Well, Margaret, um, that was truly a, a seminal study that you did from work at the NIH uh, several decades ago. And I know that uh, I and my colleagues around the world well recognize that we do see ventricular dysfunction in sepsis and that it, it must be uh, appropriately treated. So I wonder if I could turn to our colleagues around the world now and ask a question. Could you first state your city and country location? And our question is this. In patients with septic shock who develop ventricular dysfunction, what medication do you typically use to support ventricular function? Uh, Margaret, uh, your initial studies at the NIH uh, used radionucleotide scans to um, measure diastolic systolic volumes, and of course we don't do that at the bedside. Um, we all know that uh, patient in sepsis who's hypotensive, um, we have traditional measures, but what do you consider to be optimal measures to assessing ventricular function in a patient with septic shock? The current practice now is to use echocardiography to identify um, ventricular dysfunction in septic shock. Standard bedside um, echocardiography is widely available, non-invasive, relatively easy to use, uh, and can frequently identify um, left, uh, particularly left ventricular dysfunction. Strain echocardiography 
is more sensitive for identifying diastolic dysfunction and right ventricular dysfunction. Um, this paper by uh, Basu and the group at um, uh, Washington, D.C. National Children's Hospital used two-dimensional speckle tracking imaging to look at myocardial performance in children who had septic shock that was not recognized by conventional echocardiography. Um, the advantage of speckle tracking imaging being that you can go back using an echo that was previously done and reanalyze it and look. Uh, and they found in uh, 15 children who had um, previously had a normal echo um, but had septic shock that there was in fact abnormal uh, left ventricular um, dysfunction. They further uh, measured troponin in those children and found that the troponin correlated with the cardiac dysfunction uh, in these children. So there are standard echocardiography is very useful for detecting myocardial dysfunction, but there are newer echocardiographic techniques um, that are much more sensitive um, and will pick it up in uh, cases very often when standard echocardiography won't. While echocardiography is certainly very useful in identifying both left and right uh, ventricular dysfunction and septic shock, the correlation with clinical outcomes and definitive direction of therapy um, still needs further uh, definition. I wonder if I could turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. Could you first please state the city and country where you practice? And the question is this. Do you routinely use echocardiography to assess ventricular function in pediatric patients with septic shock? Dr. Parker, um, I wonder if I could turn now and ask you, um, can you tell us the, the story about goal-directed therapy? Um, as you well know, about 15 years ago, there was a seminal study, and um, it became a widespread throughout adult and pediatric critical care practice. How has that story evolved? What should we know about it? Um, you're absolutely right, uh, Jeff. In 2001, Manny Rivers published his seminal paper on early goal-directed therapy in patients with severe sepsis and septic shock um, using specific monitoring, uh, central venous oxygen, oxygen saturation, lactate, um, CVP monitoring, and treatment with blood transfusion to maintain a hemoglobin greater than 10, uh, and dobutamine if needed to maintain the SCVO2 greater than 70%. Um, this paper showed a significant reduction in mortality uh, in the patients who were treated in the emergency department in the first six hours with early goal-directed therapy using the, the defined targets that he um, laid out in that paper. Uh, it surprisingly rapidly changed practice. It was really a seminal paper, although it was not without substantial criticism, one of which was that the control population had a higher than expected uh, mortality. Uh, but, but the concept of standardizing treatment to specific goals rapidly caught on and quickly was implemented. But in the face of all of that, of the controversy about the study, um, three subsequent studies came out within the last 
little bit more than a year in, in 2014 and 2015. Uh, the process trial that was led by Derek Angus and carried out in the United States, the ARISE trial that was carried out in Australia, New Zealand, and the PROMISE trial that was uh, carried out in the UK. And all three of these studies compared early goal-directed therapy using the RIVERS protocol to patients managed according to uh, standard care, whatever the um, physician at the bedside um, felt was appropriate management for these uh, patients. They were large trials. Each of them had 12 to 1,500 patients. And in all three studies, there was no difference in mortality in, in any substantial outcome measures uh, between the early goal-directed therapy and the standard therapy groups, which uh, is viewed by some as saying early goal-directed therapy um, is not useful. Uh, I think some of the what happened in the ensuing 10 years before these studies were started um, is that our care of patients with sepsis shifted, and we became more aggressive at early fluid resuscitation and early antibiotics, which I believe are really the mainstay of management of patients um, with septic shock. And so the, the specific goals that um, Manny Rivers laid out might not by themselves be the optimal goals, but the concept of standardizing therapy and being early and aggressive, um, I think, did change the face of management of septic shock. So, Margaret, I wonder if I could ask you, um, you well recognize um, in your position as associate editor of a prominent journal, if not the most prominent journal in our field, um, that uh, the clinical science advances uh, not because one paper provides all the answers, but that one paper generates further hypotheses that have to be explored and they have the initial findings have to be reproduced. And yet others have noted that it did take us a long time, almost 10 years, for these, as you noted, really rigorous, well-designed clinical trials to test and really refute the initial findings. And, um, and that the pace of the field isn't evolving as fast as needed uh, because these RCTs are difficult to perform, but also because it, it, it takes so long to really perhaps question and review what uh, initially seemed to be promising uh, findings. What is your take on this? I, I think you're exactly right that um, we have seen a number of uh, randomized controlled trials come out which have been very um, promising and very sometimes relatively rapidly implemented but then not repeated. It's, it's extremely difficult and extremely expensive to do these kinds um, of studies. And so that's part of the delay. You know, with the Rivers trial, it came out, it was probably several years before it kind of became standard practice. And then it was probably several, several more years before these various groups uh, got funding to um, complete the large trials they did. And then the studies themselves take several years. So it's difficult to make rapid changes in our field, um, I, you know, I think a single randomized controlled trial, one has to be cautious in completely changing practice because uh, the literature is full of randomized trials that were not positive on repeat studies and were not replicated. So it's a difficult patient population. It's expensive to do these trials. 
one has to apply what one can from the clinical trials, but it tends to be done sort of cautiously. And so if I hear you correctly, um, what you're saying is that one of the lasting findings of the River study, regardless of the subsequent studies, was that it moved us into an era of protocolization and the surviving sepsis campaign, and that in itself, even though we don't necessarily know the precise optimal protocols and outcome targets, but that the act of actually protocolizing our management moved the field significantly. I think you're exactly right. As we standardize our management, the staff knows what to expect, the treatments are implemented in a timely manner, um, and we do move the, the field forward. To get the exact right protocol is probably close to impossible, but as we standardize things, we improve things, and with each step we can then change the protocol and improve things a little bit more. I think we've seen that with tight glycemic control, perhaps to some extent with low tidal volume ventilation. I think there are a lot of um, studies that have um, essentially a large uh, single randomized controlled trial that has swung the field not necessarily to the exact protocol of the initial study, but have really informed our practice. Dr. Parker, I, I suspect I speak for many colleagues around the world in now asking this question. So what is the optimal management to guide resuscitation of the pediatric patient in septic shock? We have two um, major papers, two seminal papers, if you will, that give us guidelines on how to manage um, patients with septic shock. Certainly the surviving sepsis campaign has done a huge amount of work in uh, helping us to protocolize our management of septic shock. Um, it has been updated most recently in 2012 and includes recommendations for both adults and children um, for the management um, of septic shock, focusing on the early uh, phases of management. In addition, the American College of Critical Care Medicine has clinical practice parameters for the hemodynamic support of pediatric and neonatal septic shock, which was last updated in 2007, um, and has algorithms for pediatric septic shock that really um, have are still included in the surviving sepsis guidelines and remain pretty much the uh, mainstay of how we approach a child with septic shock. Um, this algorithm from the uh, American College of Critical Care Medicine guidelines shows a timeline and time sensitivity focusing on particularly early recognition uh, and early institution of um, antibiotics and fluid therapy, of course with treatment of hypoglycemia, hypocalcemia, and metabolic um, abnormalities um, if they occur, and then goes on uh, for fluid refractory shock to recommend management with inotropes or vasopressors depending on the hemodynamic state of the patient. Um, this, this algorithm currently still includes management monitoring um, with central venous pressure and uh, central venous oxygen saturation, but the surviving sepsis guidelines in view of the three papers we just recently talked about have made those optional uh, monitoring tools. Um, in pediatrics, uh, the algorithm for the child with fluid refractory shock goes on to um, separate the children into cold shock and warm shock. Uh, and the approach to hemodynamic support 
um, differs according to the clinical assessment, whether if they have warm shock, they're assumed to be vasodilated and it's recommended to use norepinephrine, while if they have cold shock, it, they are assumed to be vasoconstricted and epinephrine, or if they're normotensive, uh, an inotrope such as dobutamine or milrinone um, is more likely recommended. Um, the child with persistent catecholamine-resistant shock um, may then go on to require ECMO uh, in, if uh, that's available in the setting where the child's being treated. Um, you've made the point several times about um, algorithms and protocolization. Is there any evidence in the pediatric literature that uh, protocolization or an algorithm such as this actually improves outcomes? Yes. The, the, the study by Hahn and his colleagues at um, the U University of Pittsburgh, um, which was published in Pediatrics in 2003, um, is an important paper that I think pediatric intensivists should know about that looks at early resuscitation of children with septic shock. What they did was they looked at children who were transferred to the University of Pittsburgh from community hospitals. These children arrived at the community hospital in septic shock, um, were initially treated there, and then referred to uh, the University of Pittsburgh. They looked at whether or not shock had been reversed by the time the children arrived at the University of Pittsburgh. In the children in whom shock was reversed, at the community hospital, the survival was 96%. Um, as compared to those who remained in persistent shock where the survival was only 63%. I think this is really important evidence that early frontline therapy is critical for improving outcomes for children in septic shock. This group further looked at the resuscitation uh, protocol that was used at the community hospital level and whether the child was resuscitated according to the American College of Critical Care Medicine guidelines or not. The children who were resuscitated according to those guidelines had a greater than 90% survival, while children who were not resuscitated according to the guidelines had a survival in the low 60s. So again, that suggests that using the, the guidelines and the algorithm recommended by the ACCM does in fact lead to better outcomes in children with septic shock. Well, um, Dr. Parker, I wonder if I could push you a little bit on this. Um, when I look at that data, I, I also uh, ask myself, well, is it possible that what we're seeing are not a failure of the protocol, but actually that these are non-responders and that it wasn't the protocol that made the difference, but that um, in the cohort that's not doing well, they're not doing well because they're non-responders to initial interventions? I, I think that's an excellent question, and I, I think it's difficult to uh, get to that directly. I think the, the best answer I can give you to that is looking at those who had shock reversed, one could say, um, yes, the, the ones whose shock was not reversed were non-responders. But if you look at whether or not they used the algorithm, if they used the algorithm, that's not necessarily saying that those patients all had shock reversal, but those patients had a better survival than if they did not use the algorithm. So I, th I think that's sort of indirect evidence, but it does suggest that using a standardized protocol like that does improve outcome in these children. Dr. Parker, I, I wonder if we could move on now to some of the um, controversies um, that have arisen in the literature um, that are now causing us to question really how much fluid we should be giving. 
And I'm, of course, referring to uh, the FEAST trial. As you know, uh, Dr. Catherine Maitland has been a guest in this forum. But I'd be interested to know how you put the FEAST study in context. Well, I, I have to say that I am very impressed with Dr. Maitland's ability to carry out a study like this in a resource-poor resource environment like Africa. She was able to randomize over 3,000 children with severe sepsis um, to a treatment with a fluid bolus or not uh, with a fluid bolus. And uh, her findings kind of shook our pediatric critical care community uh, because our very foundation has been aggressive fluid resuscitation for early treatment of sepsis. Um, but contrary to expectations, the mortality rate in her study was higher in the children who received a fluid bolus than in those children who did not and were treated just with maintenance fluids. Um, I have thought a lot about this study. I'm sure a lot of other people have as well. Um, this is another one of those randomized controlled trials that is never going to be repeated. It's just, you know, I can't imagine it could be repeated. Uh, I believe the data, but I, I think that it has not caused me to change my practice in terms of fluid resuscitation because I think I'm treating a different patient population in a different resource setting than what she has. 57% of her patients had malaria. The mean hemoglobin was seven, which is much lower than most of the kids that we see presenting with sepsis. Um, a third of them had hemoglobin below five. And so giving a bolus of normal saline to somebody with that degree of anemia is probably not gonna help their uh, hemodynamic state and their overall um, oxygen delivery. So I think that there are differences in the patient population that at least in part explain the differences. Um, and I think in different settings, one has to look carefully at the patient's patient population you're treating and what your clinical results are and carefully assess each patient as you treat them. I think the PALS algorithm of reassess after every uh, intervention is particularly important in light of the uh, FEAST study. Um, we have to be careful with our fluid resuscitation, but I still think that we have enough evidence in, our, in a developed country that early aggressive fluid resuscitation with appropriate reassessment is important. And um, I know in my discussion with Dr. Maitland, I, I think her comments are very much in line with what you said. She was very careful to say, you know, this is context dependent and um, these children in East Africa did not have positive pressure ventilation available to the physicians to uh, resuscitate them further if they developed capillary leak, fluid overload, left atrial hypertension. And so she was very careful to make that point as well. It, you know, it, everything is context dependent, and that was their context. And as you noted, um, in other parts of the world where positive pressure is available, then you know, fluid resuscitation may be indicated. Uh, nevertheless, it does lead to some intriguing questions that do deserve follow-up, and I know she's working on that as to, you know, paradoxically, why did those children uh, do better with uh, less fluid? I wonder if I could turn to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. Could you first uh, identify the city and country uh, where you practice? And the question is this. Has the results of the FEAST trial, as reported in the New England Journal several years ago, changed your management regarding uh, fluid resuscitation? 
If it has changed your management, uh, do you uh, provide less vigorous fluid resuscitation than you did prior to the publication of that study? So Margaret, um, you know, the last question, and again, I suspect my colleagues around the world are wondering this as well. You noted that the most recent surviving sepsis guidelines uh, state that it's optimal to place um, a central line for CVP monitoring or central venous catheter oxygen saturation monitoring. Um, but the question becomes, what in your view is optimal monitoring of the patient in septic shock? And clearly it's going to be context dependent in resource limited environments uh, versus um, uh, uh, more uh, advantaged environments. But nonetheless, is there literature to guide us on what is the optimal monitoring of these patients? In the past, we used the pulmonary artery catheter uh, to guide our hemodynamic management. That came under huge criticism and was no, shown not to particularly make a difference in outcome and pretty much has fallen out of favor, uh, at least for the management of septic shock. Um, there's, I, I don't know that we know the optimal monitoring, but there's a very intriguing paper that came out of uh, India recently by Ranjit um, that was in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2014 uh, using multimodal monitoring, that's what they called it, for hemodynamic categorization uh, and then to guide management for children with septic shock. Uh, and what they did was they used a combination of a clinical exam, um, echocardiography, um, ultrasound determined inferior vena cava measurement, and invasive blood pressure monitoring. So they used the diastolic blood pressure as a measure of um, vasodilation. And they used those findings to categorize patients, th these children, um, as having being hypovolemic, being having vasodilatory shock or vasoconstricted shock, and whether they had myocardial depression. Um, they then developed treatment algorithms for each category. So obviously, if they found the child to be hypovolemic, they gave more fluid. If they found myocardial depression, they gave an inotrope, um, dobutamine. If they found vasodilation, they used uh, norepinephrine um, for the most part. And um, so they, they used the monitoring tool to define the hemodynamic state of the child and then use that with a predefined treatment algorithm. And I think that's the best way to look at how does this um, monitoring tool help us. They studied 48 patients and on clinical exam, these were all children who had initially been fluid resuscitated. 21 of them had cold shock, which we would typically think are vasoconstricted. Um, and they had been treated with inotropes um, prior to this study. 27 of them had warm shock and they were treated with fluids and vasopressors. After they did the echo and the invasive blood pressure monitoring and assessed the IVC, they found that 14 of the 21 children who had been pre-assessed to, clinically assessed to have cold shock, actually had a vasodilatory state and they changed the treatment for those children. All 14 of the children with fluid resuscitation or whatever um, converted to a vasodilatory state and then were supported with norepinephrine. Um, the children with vasoconstricted shock included seven patients. 
two actually had evidence for volume depletion on uh, IVC assessment and received fluids. Four of them had evidence for decreased cardiac function um, and received inotropic therapy, and all of those children survived. Um, overall, there was a 91.6% uh, survival rate, which compares very favorably with survival for children with septic shock um, in developed countries. Um, I think this paper doesn't provide necessarily the optimal monitoring tools that we should use, but what it does is it defines how to use the monitoring, how to make an assessment, and then how to treat um, it ties the treatment to the assessment by the monitoring, which I think is an important piece we're going to have to include as we go forward and try to develop better uh, monitoring and management strategies. The other thing that I think is particularly uh, interesting about this paper is that 14 out of the 21 children who were assessed to have cold shock and be vasoconstricted mm -hmm were actually vasodilated. Mm -hmm. So our clinical exam is not particularly good at really identifying what's going on with the cardiovascular system. And I think it tells us we do need additional monitoring. I think the ECHO is a wonderful tool and is likely going to be very useful. And what combination of, of um, monitoring tools help us better define our treatment, I think is where we need to go in the future. I wonder if I could turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. Could you first please state the city and country where you practice? And the question is this, when monitoring the volume status of patients in septic shock, do you rely on clinical exam or central venous pressure or echocardiography or some combination of these to assess optimal volume status before titrating vasoactive agents? Margaret, it's been a privilege interviewing you and having you here for part of the World Share Practice Forum. Um, I know I speak for many colleagues around the world that we appreciate all your contributions to the field from your landmark work at the NIH several decades ago, helping us understand what ventricular dysfunction is in the septic patient, to your work over the decades in your leadership roles through the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and to the current day both for the work you do uh, in Stony Brook and for the work you do as Associate Editor of Critical Care Medicine. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's been a pleasure and an honor to be here. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.